We're going to continue in worship with a reading from Luke chapter 6. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out of him and healed all of them. He looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when many people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice on that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. For that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Um, so good to be with you today. My name is Matthew. I'm the lead pastor here, or as my uh, sons refer to me, the manager of the store. Um, so if you, have, if you need to speak to the manager, that's me. Um, it's a it's a gift to be together today. That what what um, I uh, I feel like today is um, is a hard word that comes to us uh, intentionally. So and and I also feel like I'm kind of talking over my head on on most of of today's t- sermon. Not that I'm not always to some degree, um, but just in general. Um, it's hard in a room like this room, you know, with the sort of the median wealth represented in this room with the uh, comforts that are just sort of taken for granted by those of us in this room to hear a word like, woe to you who are rich, you know, blessed are you who are poor. And so I'm asking, I guess, for the Holy Spirit to do something through my words and through this text that would awaken our church to a new way of seeing ourselves in our city and neighborhoods. Um, And so because of that, and because I just feel very humbled by the text and by um, also just, um, I personally just need to transition from the piano to here, um, uh, let my my heart catch up to my body. So why don't we pray? And then... um, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we thank you so much that you are holy. And that what that means, um, ultimately, Lord, is not simply that you're really good or um, better than most. That your holiness, God, is that you are other. And that there is nothing like you. No one, no thing. And that what we are here to do is to learn to be your people, to be holy people on the earth. That we would be motivated by a different kind of life, a different vision of the good life. We would be filled with a different spirit, and we would be able to have a life that is marked by the otherness of it from, um, well, from the kingdom of this world, the kingdom that says, blessed are the rich. 
Blessed are the full, blessed are the laughing. And woe to the hungry, woe to the poor, woe to those who grieve. God, we thank you that in Jesus, somehow these things turn upside down and you invite us to stand on our heads with you. And so help us, Lord, today to do just that, to be aware of your spirit and what you are saying right now, Holy Spirit. Come and speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I am losing my voice. Um, It's just all around. This is going to be so good. Um, Luke chapter 4, Jenny taught on this a couple weeks ago. Uh, It's how Jesus announces his ministry. He reads from the prophet Isaiah chapter 61. And you may remember this, but Jesus rolls rolls to the place in the scroll and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to set the captives free to declare the year of the Lord's favor. And so we are told very early on in Luke's gospel that Jesus is here for the poor. And it shouldn't surprise us, therefore, when two chapters later, Jesus begins his Sermon on the Plain with the words, blessed are the poor. Now, the Sermon on the Plain, if these words sound familiar to you, there's a more famous version of this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We'll look at it some other year, like next liturgical year. Yeah, next liturgical year. Uh, But this year, we're in Luke. It's a very similar amount of material, very similar material, but it's not the same sermon. uh, And the the differences are pretty stark. Um, But he says, blessed are the poor. Matthew has the qualifier, poor in spirit. And we're all like, I can find myself in that. But Luke just says, blessed are the poor. Jesus comes out of the gate with good news for the poor and a warning for the rich. And so let's just acknowledge at the front that this is a hard word for us that we're probably uncomfortable with some of the implications of this text, that it's coming to a room full of people who are relatively well off, at least by any metric against the rest of the world, that most of the world live far lower, what we would maybe call qualities of life, whatever uh, sort of vague subjective term that is, um, than what we enjoy here and the things we just sort of take for granted, the things that are afforded to us because we live where we live, when we live, how we live, Jesus comes to bring what is called the great reversal. We first read about this in the opening chapters of Luke when Mary says, the rich will go away empty and the hungry will come and be fed. That the powerful will be toppled and the lowly will be lifted up. So there's a reversal that's taking place in the ministry of Jesus. And therefore, it really shouldn't surprise us that Jesus puts this into words immediately in his first sermon. I want to spend this morning talking about what does this mean that Jesus comes for the poor? And we're also going to be looking at this in a coming week's podcast, not tomorrow's podcast, but next week's uh, podcast. So we're going to be talking about this for a little bit. Um, But what does it mean? Uh, There's a lot of Old Testament expectation around this. What happens when God visits his people? What happens when Yahweh comes to be with his people? And what does it mean for the poor? And then what does it mean for those of us who wouldn't necessarily be called poor? How do we live into that story? Are we excluded from it, or how do we find ourselves included in it? So first of all, though, let's talk about what Jesus isn't talking about. Jesus isn't saying, if you're not poor, you should try really hard to be poor. He's not prescribing poverty to people. This is not a word where you should go, okay, this week, my job is to sabotage my career. My job is to send the email I've been sitting in my outbox for a long. It's been in the drafts folder. I'm finally going to send it. This, that's, that's not the word. It's not seek poverty out. 
Um, he's not saying uh, that we should do that. But what he is saying, though, is that those of us who find ourselves in poverty, and maybe if some of us in this room do, but certainly many in the world, it's a different way of seeing the poverty. It's essentially, he's saying not that this is prescriptive, but it's descriptive, that those who are poor in the world actually have a, 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 like a leg up. They have, um, that they're the fortunate ones. These words, blessed and woe, are really important for us to, to grasp uh, because they, Jesus is obviously playing them off against one another. The word blessed, uh, the Greeks makarios, uh, the word blessed means fortunate or lucky. And we use in our language uh, today, we, we will talk about like people who are poor or who are um, uh, handicapped or any number of things. We'll say those people are less fortunate. And this is our way of trying to be generous to acknowledge that most of us live with relative wealth and it's not our doing. I mean, I'm not saying that you guys didn't like study to get the grades or like, you know, whatever, work really hard to get into the school or get the job or get the promotion. We all did that. But none of us, none of us picked the family we were going to be born into, when we were going to be born, the zip code we would grow up in, the school that we would go to. None of us picked any of those things. Most of the things that were just automatically given to you as a good set of, like a good hand of cards out of the gate that were not given to people in our own city, in our own backyard. And we know that's true. The people like living just two zip codes that way, one that way have a very different reality or a different set of cards that were at birth. So we talk about people who find themselves in these situations and we say they're, they're less fortunate. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that because the spirit of it is, is, I think, generosity, which is good. But interestingly, according to Jesus, it's wrong that the most, the most fortunate ones on the earth, according to Jesus, are the ones that we would say are least fortunate. Meanwhile, the word woe is, is, uh, is a word that means warning. So essentially he's saying, um, there is, there, here's, I'm warning you who find yourself this morning rich, full, laughing, spoken well of. Um, there's a warning to take seriously. So Jesus is not calling us, though, to pursue poverty. What is he doing? Well, he's also not simply calling us who have material wealth to pursue charity. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with charity. I think charity is, is great. And this week we saw a really beautiful example of, or the last two weeks, So what happens when people just rally together and they go to the store, they go to Target, wherever, and they buy uh, bedding? Because now there are going to be dozens of families who were fleeing violence in Afghanistan who are now here in our country, in our backyard, and when they get into their home, whatever temporary place they're staying in, there's going to be bedding for their kids. And some people picked out really cute bedding for kids, which was really fun. Because you can imagine there's probably very little that will be bright in those moments in that space. And to just have like something soft and beautiful and fun for these families to walk into. Charity is good. It's just that it only alleviates a temporary issue and usually exists within a system of injustice. And it doesn't do anything to fix the system. What's causing the need for charity? It doesn't address that. It just addresses the immediate need in the moment. It also, sadly, oftentimes leads us to being very self-congratulatory. Charity works well for us. Tonight, we will watch the Super Bowl commercials, and there will be many organizations telling you how wonderful they are because of how charitable they are. And they're going to try to get you to buy their products because it's really about their bottom line. But that's how charity tends to work in our world today. It's uh, um, it's gross. It may, it's like that, that, that pukey emoji, like throw up in your pocket. That's why it's mostly used in this world. Even when it's sincere and it's coming from a place of like abundance and a desire to do good, it still tends to exist within a, a system of injustice and it tends to be pretty uh, self-congratulatory. Also, 
Uh, Walter Brueggemann says, Charity permits us to keep from questioning our own vested interests in the system that necessitates the need for charity, so it's a safe environment to live in that permits us to feel virtuous. I told you, this is a really hard sermon. Um, so what is Jesus talking about? Well, when he says that the poor get the kingdom, the hungry are fed, the mourning are, will laugh, he is making promises of future restitution. He is essentially saying, because I am here now, because the kingdom is here now, those who have had not enough will have what they need. And in doing that, he is standing squarely in the middle of the Old Testament prophetic tradition in which they understood that when God came, that literally the system would be changed, that the, the, the thing that runs the world would be turned on its head, that the scales would finally be leveled, and no more would there be injustice in the marketplace. No more would there be unjust you know, weights in the balance, um, which is, of course, the world that we live in. Ginny talked a couple weeks ago about uh, the year of Jubilee. It's at the end of that Luke 4 text. The year of Jubilee was a biblically instated uh, year of every 50 years in the life of the people of God in which all debts were forgiven, all lands were retor- returned to their first owners, all, all, like, all people set free. All slaves released. Everyone was forgiven. Everyone was given their land. Everyone was given a blank slate. It was the year of Jubilee. Jesus comes and says, I am here to bring the year of Jubilee. Now, how is this possible? What is Jesus imagining when he says that this is now um, at the door? Well, first of all, let's talk about who the poor are in the Bible. When we talk about the poor, we typically are talking about widows, orphans, and and, widows. immigrants, not, not merely people with material poverty, although certainly they are also included in that. But specifically, when the Bible talks about poverty, it's talking about usual, usually social poverty, people who have no agency over their own life. So who are the people who get gobbled up, chewed up by the system, and spit out? It's people who don't have an advocate for them, especially in a patriarchal society. That was true. It's still true today. If you are a widow, if you're an orphan, if you're an alien, uh, an immigrant, and you don't have someone who can speak the language for you, who can fill out the forms for you, who can do the work for you, if you don't have that, what happens? You get gobbled up by the system. If you've ever been in a place where you've needed to try to get food stamps for your family, and you, as an English speaker, know how hard it is in this system to get that to work for you, imagine if you actually have no agency or no advocacy for you to do this. So Jesus is saying, essentially, when he's talking about the poor, he says, hey, good news, you have advocates now. You have an advocate. This is actually what the Exodus story is, essentially. The people had lived in slavery for 400 years in Egypt, uh, and they had had no agency over their life. That's what slavery is, no agency. And God had served as a legitimator for these people, pulling them out and saying, no longer are you slaves and servants, but now you are my people. You have a homeland. You have a name, my name. That's what's written on you. So he serves as an advocate for these people to remove them from bondage and instead put them into a land of, uh, of their own. And that is what Jesus essentially is saying is true now, is available now for those who have no effective voice in the management of social power. So to be an advocate for the voiceless is essentially the call to the church. I saw something on social media a couple weeks ago that was really powerful. It was this um, post about how uh, infant baptism should be a call to racial justice and social justice in the church. And here's why. Because when we baptize a baby in the church, we take on the needs of that baby's whole community. And so Richard Mao, who was a longtime president of Fuller Seminary, said this. He said this 
I mean, gosh, 40, he said this 44 years ago. But he says, to make covenantal promises on behalf of a black child, for example, is to commit ourselves to the black struggle. I think it's actually amazing he said this in 78. If society tries to treat this child like a second-class citizen, we have to protest on behalf of him because now he is our brother. So this is essentially what happens when we baptize babies. We are saying now the, now the care and the cause of your community is our cause because we're family, we're kin, we all belong to one another. Whether this person is a, is a racial minority, whether this person is disabled, whatever it is, it's now our cause. We, we take it into ourselves because now we are... Uh, we're kin. We are essentially serving as advocates. It becomes our call to use our voice. So how do we do this? Jesus, when he says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, because these things are coming to them. The kingdom is here. These things are coming to him. He has in his mind real change. He doesn't just have in his mind like handouts or like a couple of people who get inspired a couple of times a year to do something good, which is still good. It's not not good. It's just not quite what he has in mind. If you read the prophets, you see that what God has in his mind, what Jesus has in his mind, in this, is something far larger than that. He's talking about the release of advocates on the earth to do and speak for the voiceless and to give voice to the voiceless and power to the powerless, to take the power and the wealth that we have and to make sure that it, is, uh, it's, it ends up in another's hands. The first way we do this is we need to understand the system that we are living in, the system that's stacked against the poor. We just need to understand like what it is. One of the things our staff's been doing for two years now, ever since the George Floyd murder, when sort of the whole country simultaneously woke up um, to something that the black church had been saying forever. Um, but when churches like ours finally was like, this actually can't, we cannot, we cannot be silent about this anymore. We have to do something about this. Really for two years, um, what our leadership team has done predominantly is learn about the system. We've learned about what, has led to this sort of uh, brutality. We've learned about what has led to uh, gentrification in our area. If you lived in Oakhurst 20 years ago, this was a very different place, you know. Uh, it didn't look anything like it looks right now. That's true of a lot of Atlanta. How did we get here? What is the racial history of our city? These things should inf inform how we understand what it means to love neighbor and what it means to be proximate to a place. If we can't understand how people have been literally pushed out so that we can enlarge our you know, um, home footprint, then we're not actually loving our neighbor. And so we've spent about two years, first of all, trying to figure out what the system is. We got a, we got books on the shelf. You can you can do your own research. There's lots of there's lots of things to read. Um, Jamar Tisby's uh, book, I can't remember the name of it right now. Uh, his first one is a great We have to learn to be willing to be humbled by the facts that that we live in a system that has perhaps disproportionately served us at the expense of others. And we, we do this because what we're trying to move towards in ourselves and in our community is we're trying to move towards Jesus's vision of the kingdom. Jesus's kingdom of God is a socio-political vision in which there is distribution of wealth and power that is equal, equitable. Um, this is why Brian Stevenson, the social justice uh, warrior, the, the, the death row attorney, probably many of you have seen uh, the movie about Brian Stevenson, um, which I can't remember right now, but anyway, it's worth seeing. Um, he says uh, that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. I love that. Brueggemann says it similarly. He says the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is shalom. And really, that's, he's just doing what Brian Stevenson is doing, but he's doing it in Old Testament language. The opposite of poverty is not wealth, it's justice. 
And for us to wake up to the reality that we live in a system in which the poor are disproportionately marginalized, simply because of any number of factors, the zip code they grow in, they grew up in, the color of their skin, family of origin, the first thing we need to recognize is that our wealth has by and large dulled our senses to the cry of afflicted people. Um, I think we saw this actually in the last two years. There was a lot of like energy in the summer of 2020. Remember that? It was the largest protest movement in the history of this country. And that's saying something because there's been a lot of protest movements in the history of this country, including the thing that started the country. Largest protest movement in the history of the country. More people involved, more people engaged, more people at protest than at any point in history in our country. And it just got hard to sustain that. Didn't you feel it? It just got hard to maintain the energy. And then it got politicized, and then it got corporatized, and it just became this thing about money-making, and it got gross, and it wasn't even, no one even knew what we were fighting for. And meanwhile, the people who have been crying out for, for literally hundreds of years, like, pay attention to my struggle, are like, oh, okay, well, there we go again. Because wealth dulls our senses to the cry of the afflicted. Material goods make it possible for us to just simply turn our ear away. And that is a thing of immense privilege that I have, to just care when it's convenient. The problem with wealth is it dulls our senses. It also, I think, dulls our senses to what real joy is, by the way. Um, a lot of promises are going to be made tonight on TV. I'm not bashing the Super Bowl. God bless the Super Bowl. May they win, whoever they are. I'm just saying, like... I'm just saying um, what you and I are going to watch is a five-hour commercial for a good life that doesn't exist. You know, We're going to be told one promise after another that if we had this, if we had this, kind, like th then we would have the life we're looking for. And it's just, we all know, we all know it's a lie, and yet we fall for it again and again and again. It dulls our senses to what real joy is. The problem with poverty, meanwhile, is that it disempowers a person from agency in their life. And so the call of Christ is for those of us who are wealthy to use our wealth to empower the powerless. So first, we need to understand the system that we're living in. Second, we need to understand how we're complicit in it. How are we complicit with this system? The Bible says a whole lot about what causes poverty, but if you were going to give it a word, the word is greed. And from the Old Testament all the way through, once again and again, you hear how is greed function in a society? This is how it functions. Uh, high interest loans. This is all from the Old Testament. Cheap labor which is our whole system is built on. Wage theft, credit manipulation. These sound familiar? These aren't like new ideas. This is, how, this is how powerful people have been cooking the books for as long as there have been books to cook. There isn't anything very mysterious about this. And those of us who have any small amount of agency, any small amount of power in the world, who have any capacity to use what leverage we have in order to reverse these trends, in order to do something about them, the people that w who work for us or the companies that we run or whatever it is, or even the classrooms that we teach in and the way that we're pouring into young minds, all of these are opportunities for us to begin to use that power in order to wake people up to their need to use their social power for the sake of those who have none. There's a really practical little uh, passage in Deuteronomy, which is super fun, where it says, um, if you have, if someone owes you money, it's like you can you can chart you can charge this person low interest on this loan, which is actually surprising because most of the time in the Old Testament it's like no no interest at all, but it's like it says you can hold the person's cloak collateral, 
You can hold the person's cloak as collateral. And you're like, okay, that kind of makes sense. That sounds like the world we live in. But then it says, like, the very next verse, like, but don't you dare let them go to sleep that night without that cloak. So, like, you hold that cloak, but then you're like, okay, well, the sun's going down. I'm going to give you your cloak so you can go to sleep. So you have something to wrap your body in. I'll be back in the morning to come back. Like, that's a lot of work. It's like, yeah, well, it's reminding you, actually, first of all, how important is that cloak? How important is that collateral? This is your neighbor. What's more important, your bottom line or the fact that this person can sleep and be warm? So the Bible is very practical about these things. It's just talking about those of us who have any sort of power, any sort of capacity, any sort of agency over other people. How are we using it? This is why in Isaiah 58, uh, it says, uh, Is not this the Sabbath fast that I desired, to bring the homeless poor into your house? And yet on the day of my Sabbath, what do you do, the prophet says? He says, you exploit your workers on the day of my Sabbath. Do you know what that means? We talk about Sabbath a lot here. Sabbath is really important to us. We think God made the world uh, and he made it to live and exist in the rhythm of work and rest. And that rest is actually the first day that human beings, they're, they're created on the sixth day. I'm not talking literally. They're created on the sixth day. And the seventh day is Sabbath. We wake up into Sabbath rest. And out of Sabbath rest, we do the rest of the work. Sabbath is incredibly important. Those of us who are burning ourselves out seven days a week, we are not living in the way God's made us to do, which is why a lot of us are so burned out, which is why a lot of us are so burned out. But last couple uh, months, my family's been going through a lot, and it's caused at times my wife and I to be on, like in separate separate parts, like all day long and through the night, and uh, because we're just at this point just going going through a lot with with our kids, and and so I've been doing essentially a lot of single parenting for the last couple months. And can I tell you who can't Sabbath? Single parents can't Sabbath. There is literally no way. Like you're just you are always on the clock. Now, what does that mean? What does Isaiah 58 call us to then? How dare you, the prophet says, call people to Sabbath and then not make it possible for them to Sabbath. Now, listen, I'm not saying like, guys, come on, help me out. I'm not saying actually I've got a lot of help, a lot of people taking care of me. Honestly, I feel super loved and supported more in more ways than I can. But there's a lot of people in our community who don't have that kind of platform that I have and the ability to, who also are like, yeah, that would be great, a day off the chance to not have to do laundry, the chance to not have to take every small little sliver of time in my life and somehow cook it full of like as much productivity as possible because I'm up to my neck. In other words, it's almost like from the very beginning, the Bible says in order for us to live into the way God is called us to live, we have to empower one another to do it. And if you have any agency in your life, any capacity to make it possible for someone else to live into God's good purposes on the earth, it's our job to advocate for that. That's what we're called to do. Blessed are those who are hungry because why? They will be filled. Those who are mourning will laugh. Why? Because they have people advocating for them now. Um, thirdly, just quickly, where is this all leading? Where is this all leading? It's leading to shalom. This great Old Testament word, it's usually translated peace. It's not a very good translation of it, but we don't have a good English word for it because it's more holistic than peace. It's certainly not just the absence of conflict. It's greater than that. It's not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of wholeness. It's like it's full equity all around. It's everyone having what they need and nobody going, uh, nobody going without like everyone having what they need. And this is God's vision for the world. This is what the Garden of Eden was. God creates the earth into generous being, and we had everything we needed. And the one thing we didn't need was the thing we were like, I think I want that. And it was like, oh, and the whole thing comes undone. The whole thing unravels for the rest of humanity. And that's the world we're living in today right now. 
the reason why there are millions and millions of people around the world who essentially live as slaves, just propping up the materialism of the West is because all of us are convinced that there's things we don't need that we do need. Because we're still looking at that tree and we're saying, wow, the fruit on there is pretty good looking. I think I need that. And that's essentially like what, that's the story we're still living in. But God's intention from the beginning was shalom, that everyone would have what they need. This is also, by the way, why when you read Acts, which is the birth of the church, Acts 2 and 4, you see this really crazy thing that the church, the, like the first thing the church did <laughs> after they're like, I guess we're all Christians now. That's great. Let's get together and take communion and let's redistribute our wealth so that everyone has everything they need. It's like the first thing that happened. It's leading to Shalom. It says, Shalom is a harmoniously organized neighborhood in which all the members of the neighborhood, because they are proxy, and guaranteed to a viable and secure life of dignity. So essentially what you and I are called to do in this text, I think, is, is to mobilize whatever resources, whatever agency, whatever power, whatever wealth, whatever privilege you and I have, and to see it as belonging to someone else. This is actually what uh, Philippians 2 talks about. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is already yours in Christ Jesus, who considered others more important than himself, who even though he had the power of God and the equality with God, didn't hold on to it and grasp it, but rather emptied himself and became nothing, a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. In other words, Paul says, you and I already have within us the capacity, the mind of Jesus to be this kind of people. And yet I know that for you and me, most of us, we are intrinsically me-first people. It's just how we're, it's how we're wired. All human beings are wired that way. And yet when you put it in an individualistic society like we grew up in, it's only compounded. Of course we're me-first. How else are, are we going to think of ourselves? Well, supernaturally, what the Spirit is doing in us, it's unlocking us to be you-first people, not me-first. But that's what God is doing in us. Again, I'm speaking over my head. I know I'm speaking to a room full of tired people. I'm speaking as a tired person. I'm speaking as a person who feels like he's at a limit and doesn't know where the margins would come from to be generous towards really much of anyone at the moment. And I just want to say peace, friends. The word that God lays before us today is a word of life, not of condemnation. The spirit is life and peace. And so as this comes to us today, what's inviting us into is freedom, not to slavery. It's inviting us into true abundance, not artificial abundance. And it's already ours for the taking. This is why Paul says in Second uh, uh, Corinthians 8, he roots this whole idea of generosity in the gospel. And I just want to read it to you in closing. Um, so, context. Uh, the people in Jerusalem were really struggling. The Christians, the church in Jerusalem was super struggling. And so Paul, part of his role in his early missionary endeavors was he was basically fundraising for the church in Jerusalem. They were, they were ostracized from the community. They were kicked out of the synagogue, or the temple rather. They had no social power. And because of that, and it was a huge church. Because if you remember, if you've read Acts recently, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, um, 5,000 people became Christians. And like the next day, 4,000 people 
people became Christians. So it's a mega church, 9,000 people, and they've been ostracized from society. They have no social power. They're struggling. They're, they're hiding from religious rulers. And Paul goes around the world, and he collects money for these people. He's the first fundraiser. How cool is that? Anyway, so he is writing a letter now to the Corinthian church, who are very wealthy, very wise, very smart, very sophisticated, sort of upper echelon sort of people. And this is what he says in chapter 8. We want you to know, uh, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia is a part of Greece. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I love that so much. Their abundant joy and their extreme poverty, something that can only exist in the kingdom of God and yet clearly does exist in the kingdom. Abundant joy and extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. In other words, they were uh, strapped. They're, they themselves were barely surviving. And out of their abundant joy, even in the midst of their extreme poverty, they became radically generous. For I can testify they voluntarily gave according to their means and then some, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. And this, not merely as we expected, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God, they gave themselves to us so that we might urge Titus to do some stuff, blah, blah, blah. Now, he says, it's important, but it's not important for the moment. Verse 7, now as you, Corinthians, excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in utmost eagerness. He's like, he's like, you guys are awesome. You're awesome. He says, may you excel in this. May you excel in generosity. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. That's a, a sentence. But here's what he grounds it in. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. When Paul is looking for a way to ground generosity, he doesn't simply do so. Like, you know how generous some people are and how hard their life is? If they can do it, we could do that all day long. Do you know how incredibly generous the, the church in the, the global south is who has a fraction of the income at their disposal that we do? Like we could do it all day long. He says, this is why you're generous. Because Jesus Christ was endlessly wealthy and rich and had all things at his disposal and yet emptied himself of all of them so that through his poverty you can become rich. That now the, the, the true riches that go on forever that have no end have been given to you in abundance and you will never ever run dry. And so out of that generosity and out of that abundance, through his poverty, you and I now have something to give to others. Even if it's not a lot, even if it doesn't feel like a lot, that every one of us in here has been given through Jesus Christ an abundance of riches that is enough for the person sitting across from you today, the person that you'll encounter this week. You have what you need in that moment to become an advocate for a person And Jesus Christ shows the way, that the way that we do this is by emptying ourselves and making ourselves poor so that we could make others rich. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, Emmanuel, A-T-L, Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.